Welcome to Bob Into Buildings. I'm Bob Harrison. In this six-part series, I'll be visiting more buildings on the island that have a story to tell. The previous two series are still available on the Manx Radio website. Just look for Bob Into Buildings under podcasts. Tonight, we take a tour around Russian Abbey with Alison Fox from Manx National Heritage, who I asked, what are all these doll illustrations around the entrance? As you enter Russian Abbey, we have the fence along the garden here, and it's got uh, a few of what we call our Russian dolls, so R-U-S-H-E-N, Russian dolls. And these really give an indication, before you even get onto the site, of the variety of the history of Russian Abbey. It started off, of course, as the Abbey, but it's been so many other things during the 800, 900 years it's been in in existence that we felt it was important just to give people a little sort of uh, chapter headings almost to the different parts of the history. And that variety of history is also what's helped keep Russian Abbey um, still here today. It helps preserve it. Looking, the first one... That's got to be a Godred or something like that, is it? <laughs> yeah, it's Godred or Olaf. You're never too far wrong with one of those. It's Olaf, Olaf Godredson. Um, oh, well. Uh, he was the Viking king who donated the land for the Russian for Russian Abbey to okay. be built upon. And the land was uh, was given over in 1134. And sometimes it's, it's quite strange to think of a Viking king giving land over to you know a christian monastery a christian abbey but it was um a little bit about spiritual insurance policy as well um the viking kings they'd embraced christianity um they'd converted but they also knew that if they had a dedicated team of monks praying for them and their descendants then you know they're pretty much assured their place, a good place in the afterlife. And Hedging your bets, I think, is probably a word for it. Well, that's, that's a phrase, yes. Um, <laughs> he hopefully got on better in his afterlife than he did in his actual life because he was beheaded by one of his nephews at Ramsey. But um, it, was, it was Olaf I that gave the lands, really, and really started the history of Russian Abbey. It, they came from Furness across... The monks initially, I think. Yeah, the first group, um, whenever a new abbey or monastery was set up, then it that place would be under um, a mother house, a regional HQ, if you like. And Furness Abbey was the, the mother house of Russian Abbey. So the first abbot and the first group of monks for Russian Abbey came from there. And later on, then the, they would have been recruited locally, but certainly that first group were from Furness. And rather interestingly, we also have um, potential evidence of what's wonderfully called a warrior bishop from that very early period as well of Russian Abbey. We have records of a, a bishop, Vimond, who was in Furness Abbey. He came from quite lowly uh, beginnings, but he'd been brought into the monastery. He'd learnt to read and write, and maybe not in in the very first lot of monks that came across. Um, he was brought to the island quite early on, and he so impressed the Manx people that they wanted him as their bishop. He was made the bishop, but he turned into this raging force of nature. He gathered a band of troops and set off to invade Scotland and to take over the earldom of Murray. Uh, so he was quite an interesting character in the early history of the Abbey as well. So we see Russian Abbey today as quite a tranquil, a quiet place of contemplation. And it certainly has been that for a lot of its history, but not quite all. Well, before they agreed to sort of settle over here, were there visits... You know, did the the monks come across and try and talk to the the populace? I think there would have certainly been a familiarity. Yeah. Uh, the at this during this sort of time, uh, the 
1100s, mid 1100s, early mid 1100s, then the Isle of Man would have been very familiar to the um, the upper religious houses around about the Irish Sea, as well as the royal court as well. Olaf, who we were just talking about, he was raised at the court of uh, King Henry in England. So the the people outside the island would have been very familiar with the island and its setup. So, and they would have been very familiar uh, with the environment as well. And one of the reasons why this place was chosen was it was out of the way. You know, we see it now tucked in the middle of Balasello. We've got the traffic going past. We've got the planes going overhead. But one of the reasons it was chosen was it was actually a, a very quiet and secluded place at the time. Were the Irish coming over in that period? Because you, you hear a lot about the Irish monks and things like that. Was this to get a foothold before they came over or something like that? I, I don't think it was in a particular response to the Irish, okay. um, to, to, to the Irish monks or the, the Irish side of the, the religious aspect. We do in the, the manuscript, the Chronicles of the Kings of Man and the Isles, which we think was written at Russian Abbey and talks about this particular period of history, uh, we do get... Um, references to Ireland, particularly the Irish kings, but there doesn't really seem to be, in this period, not too much of a link with the Irish orders, um, although there was crossover later on. We have an abbot. How many monks would we have had? Well, we had anywhere from six to twelve, uh, but as the abbey got established, they also got together a community that they called lay brothers as well. So initially, the abbot and the monks wanted to be here at Russian Abbey to be secluded, to be very self-sufficient as far as they could. As time went on, this developed. They started owning more land uh, in the north of the island as well as the south of the island. They started farming sheep, particularly for the wool. So they started to, to turn a profit. Um, and so it got a little bit uh, too much to do all this physical work and also do really what they were meant to be doing, which was to worship God. Um, so they started to get this second community of lay brothers who were recruited mostly from the local population. They were under the same rules as the monks but they weren't actually accepted into the order they were, they were slightly different but both communities worked here and so there could have been you know there could have been 30 or 40 people on the site at any one time did local people worship here or was it purely for the monks it was really for the monks certainly to start with the idea was this was a place for them and it was a place where they could worship god as time went on then the abbey was a place of hospitality and one of the very few standing buildings we have on site here today is a remnant we think of that part of the abbey where people were um, brought in and essentially a guest house. Um, probably not women, only men um, and only men of a, a slightly higher status shall we say. So Olaf might have come here? Yes, yes. Well, we there are three kings of man, we think, that were buried at Russian Abbey, so the Chronicles of Man tells us. And that's Olaf, later Reginald, and the very last king of man, King Magnus, are allegedly buried on this site. So 
it's a little bit different to the later period, the period when the Isle of Man's run by the Stanleys and the Darbys, who most of them didn't spend a great deal of time here. Um, it's a little bit different. We think perhaps more spent time was spent over here during this Kingdom of Man and the Isles. Um, but search, certainly there was uh, a little bit more uh, time spiritually and emotionally spent over here. So that's why some of them were actually buried over and here. And was it all under the Cistercian order? It was, yeah. To, to start with, it was the Sauvignac yeah. order uh, that um, eventually changed into Cistercian and that really started as a, a breakaway faction, a rebel faction if you can imagine a, a rebel. There was a, a group that broke away from the Benedictine order because they felt that the Benedictine order was becoming a bit too a bit too luxurious, a bit too modern. They really wanted to get back to basics to use that old phrase. They wanted to go back to living off the land, being self-sufficient if they could, being being to worship God, that would be their only main purpose. And as part of this, they wore undyed woolen cloaks, and so they were known as the white monks. So that's that's very different. In some of the medieval manuscripts, you'll see the, the monks with the brown habits, and you'll see the monks with the white habits. So we've got the white monks here. And we've got the third one in of the Russian dolls is the typical Friar Turk, isn't it? He, <laughs> he is, he is. I, I would imagine that's mostly his clothing, though. I don't, don't know that we need to go too far into his, his size there. But um, uh, yeah, he's, you know, he's very typical. He's got the, the white. Uh, the white habit there. He's got the black apron or scapula that they would wear to try and keep the uh, white, say white, off-white uh, robes as clean as possible. He's also got the rope belt there um, with three knots in, uh, just to remind them of their vows of poverty, obedience. Chastity. Chastity, yes. Uh, not silence, funnily enough. They were not um, a silent order as such, but conversation um, talk was kept very much to a minimum only at certain parts of the day and only in certain places but they were allowed to talk to each other uh, from time to time and uh, he's uh, holding a, a copy of the chronicles of the kings of man in the isles as well and where's that at present that is safely in the care of the british library in london uh, it has been on loan um, back to the isle of man a few times in in mm. the past few years but it was uh, taken away we don't exactly know when certainly in the 1700s mm. and it formed part of a private collector's collection um, and that was formed a bequest to the British Museum which later um, the, those collections became part of the British Library but we still have the stories we have the stories from the Chronicles. Should we wander a little farther in? Yeah. As we come in a lot of education and it's surprising how education now is part of history isn't it? as far as M&H are concerned? Yes, definitely. We are very keen on... Um, education always sounds so formal, um, and so we tend to sort of talk about learning or interpretation or just letting people find out about things themselves, really. And we are, we're very keen to give people different levels of learning opportunities so for example if you come to Russian Abbey you walk around and you just think oh you used to be monks here I never knew that and that's what you go away with that's fine you know we don't want you to leave not you know having learned um, you know chapter and verse about the chronicles of man and everything so we do try and provide a light touch but also underneath that light touch there's a lot of research done and certainly when Manx National Heritage took this site Russian Abbey over 
there was a lot of work done in the grounds, the archaeological excavations, to try and find out the real detail about Russian Abbey itself, about our Abbey. We know about the Cistercian order, we know generally about Cistercian abbeys and monasteries from other places, but we wanted to know the real nitty-gritty detail of our Abbey and to offer that information to our visitors. Were these abbeys at that time built to a template? With these excavations that we uh, commissioned from the Centre of Monk Studies from 1998 to 2008, we are starting to see that that's not actually quite right in the context of Russian Abbey and the Isle of Man. Those, the results of those excavations are currently being written up by the Director of Excavations, Dr Peter Davey, and Peter is finding all sorts of nuances and little different ways that perhaps Russian Abbey worked that other abbeys didn't and this very much matches in with Manx archaeology, prehistory, history, everything in that we have some things that are very similar to what other people are doing but we usually have a little Manx twist that makes it just that slightly bit different and Russian Abbey it seems is going to be following that pattern as well. Fine and you yourself personally I am assuming other than Peter Davy are finding out new things all the while. Yeah, that's the, the the beauty of the archaeological excavations is that it's an opportunity to look at all the archival information as well. Um, we can let people know that there's the archive information. So, for example, the warrior bishop I was talking about just a couple of years ago, I had an email from somebody who was interested in doing research and he'd come over to have a look at, re at Russian Abbey to see Brilliant. where this guy might have been from. So, you know, it's people like that who do their research and feedback to us as well. So it's, it's making the information available to those people, as well as all the artefacts that came out of the excavations. We've got um, there are thousands, literally thousands of artefacts. Each one will need going through, but each one helps tell a story. Even the most incongruous little piece of lead tells us that at some point Russian Happy had glazed windows. You know, and, and it's that yeah. kind of information that's really important to put together the picture of what might have stood here when we've got relatively little upstanding remains. Before we go outside, there's a lovely model here. Um, is that truthful? Yes, yes. As far as uh, the current research thinking is, that is truthful. One of the things we're very keen to do because there's not, you know, we've not got a whole furnace style abbey still standing outside, we wanted to give people some idea of the scale and the type of building techniques. But when Russian Abbey was started to be built in the 1100s, there was no other building of this scale on the Isle of Man. Castle Russian wouldn't be started for another 70 years or so. Even then, it was a single story building. There was no bishop's court. You know, the amount of organisation, getting the stonemasons across to the island, you know, what the local people thought of this thing that was going up, you know, there was a no people would have been in no doubt that this was a big important building but sometimes just thinking about the construction of these things can be really interesting we've got this model here that shows the timber scaffolding and there's a really fabulous bit at the top that shows the the man wheel um, which is a way that all the heavy stuff was brought up to the upper layers basically it's like a hamster you put one of your workmen inside they'd run around and it would bring the uh, bring all the materials to the top and in some places in England, I think Salisbury Cathedral's got them sometimes, 
they were difficult to get out. Once you'd actually finished building the building, you couldn't actually get them out. So they're still in, they're still in situ in some buildings, so you can still go up and see these things. So it's just, you know, again, a reminder to people that this was a massive construction project. It was built um, from local limestone, as is Castle Russian. Um, it probably had a whitewash on the outside. Um, there would have been sort of a bit more sort of ornate work around the windows using sandstone. But all of this was built by hand and animal power, you know. So we just try and just remind people of that as, as they go around. And a slate roof, by the looks of it. Yes, yes, the slate roof. The, um, the slates are one of these things. There were hundreds of them found during the archaeological excavations. And... Most people, uh, quite rightly, would say, well, a slate's a slate, the slate was roofed, big deal. But there were so many found um, that, as Peter Davy says, you can extrapolate to the amount of slate with the size of building that would have been needed to hold that amount of slate on the roof. And also, it, mostly it was local slate, it was the, the local Manx series, but there was um, quite a bit of Welsh slate in there as well, so the slate was being imported to a certain extent. Um, and with the amount of slates we've got, you can work out the surface area of the roofs as well, and from then you can maybe work out the pitch. But one of the really interesting things, one of the really interesting things about slate, which is a phrase I never thought I'd use, um, is when they were doing the excavations, a lot of the slate was were found in um, quite discreet sections uh, and quite neatly laid out and we know that after the dissolution when the Russian Abbey was closed down it wasn't a case where it was just left it was actually systematically taken down so all the roof slates were taken down carefully to be ready to be reused somewhere else and after the 15th so it wasn't robbed because a lot of the buildings were robbed yeah yeah that that's it well we it's one of the assumptions that we make. You know, the building was robbed. It's something I've said before, um, prior to Peter's work, I've said before, well, of course, you know, probably a lot of the building stone from the Abbey would have been gone to build the houses in Balasella. But that's actually now we're finding out not necessarily the case at all. You know, a lot of the lead was taken down. That was found in discrete patches. So it's a very, you know, very good form of recycling building material. And of course, the thing with slate, it's quite heavy, isn't it? So that uh, allows for that guy on the ground there, a vast chunk of wood. Yeah, good. Good, good thigh muscles after that, I think, peddling them up. But yeah, I mean, that, that is one of the important things as well. And especially if you're using the Manx material, you can't get that to cleave quite as thinly as Welsh slate. So it is heavier. You've got heavier chunks of that as well. Mm. So again, it just emphasise, it emphasises the, the stature of the building and what it had to, what it had to take. And in, in a cruciform style as well, by the looks of it. Yes, and there's a, we've got um, a model of the Abbey as it would have been complete in the, the 1400s outside, which we'll go and have a look at. That shows the, the finished form of the Abbey a little bit better, but it, had the, it certainly had the church, it had chapels to one side, it had all sorts of day rooms and chapter houses mm. and lots of li little different places inside. Let's go and have a look at that then, shall we? When you come outside and look at that model, that is impressive, as you said, and it was the first inverted commas building on the island yeah it, it was certainly when it when it was built it was um it would have been so much different to anything else that had been here before the model that we've got outside shows the abbey 
Probably more like the, the 1400s, so you know, a couple of hundred years uh, after, it was, after the land was first given. The church itself was dedicated in uh, 1257, I think. So you know, these things are, aren't built up overnight and mm. they change over time as well. So initially, the, the abbey, I should say, was in a cruciform sort of uh, arrangement, but it didn't, have, it didn't have the bell tower, it didn't have the tall tower. That was added, we think, around about the 1400s. Outside, where the buildings were, we have the traditional stonework, so you can... I suppose that's what history is, isn't it, to use your imagination? I think you have to, to a certain extent, certainly with Russian Abbey. Uh, these, the footings of the buildings that you can see here, we've infilled some gaps, but m most of these are original walls. But before the excavations were started in 1998, you couldn't actually see any of these. It was, uh, there was a, a bowling green on here, and there have been excavations here at Russian Abbey for certainly decades, hundreds of years, every so often antiquarians would come and have a bit of a fertile around, see what they could find. Uh, but funnily enough, nobody was allowed to dig the bowling green, <laughs> um, <laughs> quite, quite understandably. But when Manx National Heritage took the site over, obviously it had been it had gone out of use uh, from that sort of um, leisure resort uh, point of view for quite a while. So one of the things we really wanted to do was try and find, establish the footings of the different areas of the buildings. Um, so this is what you see here. If you'd if you'd have been here before 1998, you wouldn't have seen any of this. These have been uncovered and this is really the buildings at the point really of the dissolution so the 1540s what we haven't done is go underneath these we haven't taken these away to find out the the very first stages of the history of the abbey um that's obviously a, a much bigger undertaking um but you know we've still got 400 years of the abbey to to tell the story of at the moment so um so that the walls you can see here indicate the various different parts of the abbey. Um, we have the, the cloister, uh, it looks quite a, a small one, you know, if people have been away to other places, you know, cloisters are a lot bigger, yeah. but you know, you only need the size you need, don't you? You know, that, right, that would yeah. have done the job. We've got a little chapter house here where it was almost the, the assembly each day, uh, the monks would go into the chapter house, um, some readings would be given, but then also the work for each day allocated to the different monks. Any um, any bad monks would have been chastised, you Ooh. know, all that kind of thing. Great. Um, we have uh, the parlour, which which was one of the few areas the monks were allowed to talk to, to one another, not excessively, not just chat, it had to be of, of some import, um, but we, we do have the remains of that, and the, the dining room and, and all these all these spaces that you need if you've got a community living, they, they needed spaces to do all these things. And where we've got the gardens over the back here, is that where they would have, I don't know, farmed, if we can use that expression? Yeah, the Cistercians, did try to be self-sufficient wherever possible. Um, what we've done with the gardens uh, here is to try and replicate a, mon a monastic garden really. So they had lands elsewhere on the island that they would have farmed that they, and they would have got profit from those to buy supplies as well. Mm -hmm. But there are some geophysical ditches um, at that end of the islands, which we're not entirely sure what they were, but they could have been part of the physic garden, if you like. So okay. herbs and things like that, that were grown for medicinal uses, they can be quite interesting if you find traces 
of particular cures for something, you can assume that people had the illnesses that needed the cures. So again, that helps build up the story. But also just different flavourings, just to make the diet a bit more interesting. Yeah. The Cistercians were largely vegetarian. They were allowed meats, but only if they were poorly, only if they were sick. But it was a vegetarian diet. So growing things like herbs to perhaps, you know, judge up the pottage and the soups and things like that would have been part of it as well I think. Some story in the back of my brain about Monk's Bridge being built so they could get access to the north of the island or something. Is well, that true? Certainly it was built for the monks. It was built at the time of its it's the oldest standing bridge on the Isle of Man. It dates to the time of the Abbey and I was talking about the monks being chastised but people were tried here by the abbot he was hugely powerful he was more powerful than the bishop ever was and if people were accused of religious crimes they they could be sentenced to death and they could have gone to the abbot's gatlows on black hill which you get to over the bridge so the bridge is very much still attached to the history of russian abbey given unlimited funds what would be the first thing that you would do here i think i would certainly invest it in um a comprehensive assessment of the archaeological artefacts, so a full assessment of all the human mm. remains, scientific analysis where we can. We're not always able to do that. Um, I think I would just encourage more people to come and enjoy it the way it is, really. we It's one of the few sites, I think, that is very much a, a dual-purpose site. We've got the, the very serious, um, important Christian heritage of the site at one end, but we've also got the fabulous gardens at the other. So I think very much for me, Russian Abbey can speak for itself, but sometimes it whispers, whereas I think I'd like to make it shout a bit louder. Tom Bob into buildings tonight. I've been talking to Alison Fox from M&H about Russian Abbey. You can listen again to tonight's programme and programmes on the first two series as podcasts at Magsray. I'll be back next week at the same time with another featured building in this third series of Bob Into Buildings. I'm Bob Harrison. Good evening.